This is the Ellis Martin Report. When you hear us mention companies doing any kind of business, there's a large probability, if not a certainty, that the Ellis Martin Report is compensated for that mention. And now, here's Ellis Martin. In this segment, you'll hear a conversation with my friend Rick Rule, the president and CEO of Sprott USA, at the Minds and Money London conference that we both recently attended. I'll be asking Rick about what he thinks it will take to move the needle with gold, as well as a conversation about energy, specifically uranium, of which he is a proponent of. Rick, welcome back to the program. Nice to see you again. Always a pleasure. Thank you for having me. I have a typical list of questions I would ask you that I've always asked you. I'm just going to put them aside right now and ask you personally, where's the love? Well, I think having suffered through, depending on how you count, seven fairly hard years, we're coming back into good times, particularly with regards to precious metals. I would draw your attention and your listeners' attention to a chart that I'm happy to distribute, the Barron's Gold Mining Index 40-year chart. If you look at this chart, and by the way, I'm no technical analyst, as you know, Ellis, but if you look at this chart, there's a few things that are immediately apparent. The first is that on a historical basis, we are approaching the bottom at the bottom or just off the bottom from a grossly oversold circumstance. That's a long way of saying that gold mining stocks in historic terms are very cheap. The second thing you see from looking at that chart is that these oversold periods can last as little as a year, as much as four years. And so the one that we've just been through is one for the record books. The third thing that you see is that in the nine prior recoveries from oversold bottoms over the last 40 years, the recoveries have varied on the upside between 200% and 1,200%. This isn't the best stock in the index. This is the index as a whole. So what do we learn from this, where we are today? Having been punished, our expectations are low, but our expectations are unrealistic. Gold stocks, in a historic sense, are cheap. The bad times are either almost over or over or on the way up, and the recoveries are between 200% and 1,200%. One doesn't need to outperform an index that needs to perform that well. One just needs to participate. I agree with you completely on that and about participation and people that do participate or have participated, they've been hurt dramatically by the sector. So it's my thought, correct me if I'm wrong or or say what you will, that you can't go back to traditional gold bugs or people who have been hurt who speculated in this sector and expect them to get in again and make the sector happen. And also proven by recent news, gold can't be a fear story ever again. So my thought on this, and I'm glad you're here to discuss this because I've wanted to talk about this with you, is that new money has to come into the sector that's never been here before. Family funds, conservative people from the Midwest, from the South and the U.S., from all over the world, money leaving Asia that's hearing about gold from you, from people like you, and thinking, well, maybe now's the time to do it. And they've never seen an opportunity anywhere in any sector like they're seeing here. And without that new money, you can't go back to the same people and say, hey, we're back and I think it's great and the market's going to to go through the roof and gold might hit $2,500 or $5,000 an ounce. You can't talk to people like that. What are your thoughts? The new money is here. 
at Sprott, we're seeing substantial inflows of capital. We're seeing institutional inflows from institutions that we called on as a matter of current courtesy. We didn't actually think we'd raise money from them. And we are raising substantial amounts of money in our credit funds from generalist investors. In the last three months, the inflow of money from high-end retail is very large. My suspicion is it's large because we worked for seven years to get it while all of our competitors were asleep. But the truth is that we're opening new accounts at the most rapid rate in the history of Sprott. And interestingly, almost 50% of the new accounts are being opened with people under 40 years of age. We've had inquiries in three months from 21 countries. And interestingly, too, slightly in excess of 30% of the new accounts have been female, which is a circumstance that I've never seen in the mining industry before. Traditionally, the constituency in gold mining looks like me, old, fat, rich, male. The truth is that the circumstance that you describe, which is people who are new to the narrative, understanding the narrative, is not something that's happening in the future. It's something that's happening right now. Now, I think, perhaps I should say I hope, that as a consequence of Sprott working for seven years, very hard to expand our constituency. What we're seeing is that we're becoming overnight successes after seven years of very hard work. We aren't seeing our competitors raise money in the quantum that we're raising them or in the breadth that we're raising them. Of course, the fact that our competitors are right now less successful than we are isn't something that fills me with any particular regret. But we're in this odd position right now at Sprott where we have access to opportunity. The gold mining index that I talked about evidences the fact that these companies are reasonably cheap from a historic viewpoint. We have the time and ability to analyze the opportunity before idiots buy it up, and we have access to the capital. For us, this is a real, real, real sweet spot. And this explains why you've been more aggressive making investments and I'm talking about Sprout right now I'm hearing about it I'm seeing in that and that's ultimately good for the sector well if we invest well it's good for the sector I would argue with you that the sector was never undercapitalized I would argue with you that it was always overcapitalized I would argue that part of the seven-year bear market that we endured we earned by destroying so much capital in the last decade. So I would argue myself that investors have misperceived the risk in the sector and that the sector itself would have been happier if the bear market had gone on for longer so that more worthless issuers became extinct and more useless brokers went to industries like cannabis that they studied hard. Being that we are where we are, I think the circumstance for the next two years, that fairy tale, the three bears, not too hot, not too cold, just right. I certainly didn't expect the vigor that I'm hearing in this interview, and I'm, I'm quite pleased and excited. And I want to ask you, you mentioned people under 40. My daughter's 40 years old, so people of her age and, and younger. What, in your opinion, brought them into the sector? Is it Sprott? How did it happen? Well, interestingly, I think we've begun at Sprott to learn how to reach younger people. Younger people access information differently than you and I. The top-down information distribution that existed in our youth through the popular media, as an example, doesn't exist now. Young people get information that's crowdsourced. They get it from videos. They get it from blogs. We've been very active in that medium. I have been active myself 
for six or seven years describing a contrarian paradigm, a hard money paradigm, an Austrian economics paradigm. And you don't reach young people through banner advertising. You reach them by talking to them. And my suspicion is that our access to younger investors is a consequence of spending seven years to figure out how to talk to them. Well, first of all, the millennial generation is maligned. I hear people my age talking about these lazy, uneducated youth. I don't know who they're talking about. The young millennials that we hire at Sprott are smart, educated, scared. When I think about myself at age 22 and I compare these selves to young people, if these young people are troubled, I must have been despicable. But I also see them as being a very narrative-obsessed generation. And the narrative associated with gold is extremely strong because it appeals to both greed and fear, unlike any other investment narrative that I know. So my suspicion is that in the fullness of time, the younger generation will be more committed to gold investment than my generation was. Do you think fear has to be a part of the story with regard to gold? I do, because I think it's true. The value proposition that young people face in the United States is $20 trillion in on-balance sheet liabilities and $100 trillion in off-balance sheet liabilities. And the off-balance sheet liabilities are particularly pernicious. They're me. They're 65-year-olds who voted themselves all kinds of benefits, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, and left the tab for the kids. Were I a kid, my inclination would be to say, you guys voted yourself these benefits, you pay them. The circumstance that we have now in order to pay all of the obligations that we've incurred as a society are being paid for by artificially low interest rates. In other words, a transfer of wealth from savers to spenders, which is stupid, and all through, also through quantitative easing. Ellis, if you and I did quantitative easing, it would be called counterfeiting, and they'd put us in prison. So I think young people are coming to understand that the arithmetic around the current circumstance is unsustainable, and they can't rely on society to solve their problems. They have to solve it themselves. And circumstances like that self for the last 2,000 years have motivated people towards precious metals and away from fiction and lies. If the U.S. economy capitulates again, will there be a survivable culture for however long it takes that's comprised of trading in gold? Is that ever a scenario that this fear-based mentality, which I will subscribe to again because quite honestly, I didn't think it could work anymore. I didn't think there was any story that could sell the sector. We had Greece, we had the Euro, we had this, we had that, and that all moved the markets at those times. But that was all short-term. So when I look at fear-based selling of anything, I think, well, is that even right? Is that moral? But you've just convinced me that, yes, it is, because it's part of the equation. So if there's a capitulation again, like there was in 2007, 2008, and it was bad, is there a survivable economy with precious metals and even the equities. I'm a, a very short-term pessimist, but I'm an unconstrained bull in the long term. Even in the People's Republic of California, where you and I live, we have such an incredibly creative culture. Five or six young pimply-faced kids can commandeer a garage in Sunnyvale, and out pops Google. We have the ability individually to generate so much wealth that we can mostly afford our collective stupidity. If you look at the off-balance sheet liabilities of American society, those could be obviated at the ballot box. It would be ugly, but it could be done. As to an economy that was gold-based, I hope that doesn't happen. I don't think that the political process 
goes towards gold because that limits the power of politicians. But I see a circumstance as an example with the emergence of cryptocurrencies. People are beginning to become interested in having a variety of options with regards to mediums of exchange, which I think is good. If you look in my wallet today, there's euros, there's pounds sterling, there's Canadian dollars, there's American dollars. I'm a consumer of currencies, and to the extent that people are busy inventing new currencies and competing to offer utility to me, I think this is a very good thing, gold being among them. So my suspicion is that we will have a reckoning of some form in the United States. And my suspicion is that the transition will be unpleasant, but my suspicion is that we will, in fact, get through it. I remember in my youth, you tend to be more dramatic in your youth, you know, you haven't experienced as much. In my youth, in the 60s, I was very concerned about things like civil unrest, requiring a gas mask to go to university. And I was explaining my cautions to my grandfather. And I remember him saying, you know, in my generation, we had some challenges too. We had this thing called the Great Depression. We had World War II. We got through it. You'll get through it. Remember to save during good times and remember to be aggressive and invest during bad times. That sort of information is as good today as it was then. Sprott is involved in all aspects of purveying the message with regard to precious metal, whether it be the equities, whether it be bullion itself. You're involved in a lot. And that fear or nervous story in the fiat currency story is crucial and it's real. And I've heard this out of your mouth and I probably have used it many, many, many times because it's true. One half of 1% of the investing public in the world is invested in this market. So literally that's no one. I live in Los Angeles County. People ask me what I do and I don't want to explain it because they don't know anything about our business. Most people don't. So my question to you, and it's almost a strong suggestion and it, ignorant of me to even mention it if you're already doing it, is you have a responsibility to sculpt the message for that 99.5% because if another 1% got involved, which is triple what we're doing now, or even 2%, it would change everything and it should. So you being a thought leader in the business that you've been in forever and having the team and having the ability, the marketing ability, the ability to spend money in this, to attract that audience, what are you doing to do it? I've thought of it. I don't have the resources you do, but I certainly would like to be one of the voices because I'm passionate about it. In addition to the fear story, if we just accumulated gold, if we just had it because it's nice, if we wore it, we put it in our safe, you have a car I like, I give you 10 rounds, that car's mine. Things like that, that's fun. How do we make this fun and what are you doing in that area? I don't regard it as a responsibility. I regard it as a privilege. I interact with young people, with all kinds of people. Not merely with regards to gold, but discussions with regards to freedom. As an example, I support a philanthropy called Students for Liberty, which is a libertarian student organization with 160,000 kids worldwide. I mentor by Skype students in Nigeria, students in Belarus, students in Rwanda, and I have to tell you, they're first-class human beings, so I do that. I respect that, Rick. I'm only interrupting you because I don't want you to defend yourself in that area. I don't do that in any sense of obligation. I do it because it gives me joy. What I'm asking you is what more 
can be done because I think goals should be rolling off the tongue of everyone. Just like whatever anybody's fantasy is right now, as much as we're looking at our phones, as much as we're paying attention to social media, which I don't believe moves equities at all, but that's just my opinion. I mean, what more can we do beyond all the great things that you're doing? And I've met some of the people you're talking about, and you're right, and it's great, but I still don't think it's enough. In the intermediate term, we don't need to do anything. The political class is doing it for us. Collectively, we wreak so much havoc that my suspicion is that the gold narrative will come to anybody with an IQ above 90. Now, certainly, we can act in a way that we accelerate change and give people the paradigm to accept the obviousness of arithmetic. It's important, Ellis, I think, that people who have maybe lost faith in the precious metals narrative understand that the fault is theirs, meaning that they're impatient. I'm not one of those who is particularly concerned about gold outcompeting the US dollar. I just believe that gold needs to lose a little less badly. If you take into account the fact that precious metals and precious metals-related assets comprise between one-third and one-half of one percent of investable assets in the United States. If you look back over the last three decades, the comparable number was about two percent. So if gold didn't win the war, but rather reverted to mean, which I think it will, demand for precious metals and precious metals-related equities in the largest investment market in the world would, and I think will, quadruple. Will this happen in a quarter? Of course not. Would we prefer it to happen in a quarter? Perhaps. But at 66, I know that my preferences are irrelevant. I need to alter my preferences to suit the reality that I'm being offered. And the reality that I'm being offered is my suspicion that over five years, precious metals and precious metals assets will revert to mean relative to their market share. And that's extraordinary. Look at the last decade. In the year 2000, I was forced to write a letter to my own clients, by definition gold bugs. And it wasn't entitled The Future for Gold. It was entitled A Future for Gold, merely arguing that gold had some future. In the 10 years after I wrote that letter, off a very ugly market bottom, gold went from $250 an ounce to $1,900 an ounce. We make two mistakes after getting our asses kicked for seven years. The first is that we doubt the efficacy of our own message. And the second thing is we forget what a gold bull market looks like. People now are saying, gold could go to 1700 Well, that's true. But gold could go to $4,000 or some number like that, too. The consequence of getting up every day and getting spanked is that your expectation is going to get spanked. But that assumes that tomorrow is like yesterday was. And that's inevitably a poor assumption. You know, people's expectation of the future is set by their experience in the immediate past. What von Mises called immediacy bias not set by history. And if you think about the gold market in the context of history, and if you think about the gold market in the context of arithmetic, you become very much more bullish. We're going to switch gears before we sign off here, and I want to ask you about uranium, because I know you like it. Do you feel intuitively, and I base intuition on years of experience, not any metaphysical mumbo-jumbo, do you feel intuitively that we're going to see something real and sustainable with regard to uranium. It depends on the time frame that you give me. For the second time in my career, I came into the uranium market early. 
One of my faults as an investor is that I'm extremely linear. If I think that A is true, B is true, C is true, and D is true, and that the inevitable outcome is X, I confuse two words, inevitable with imminent. It has to happen. The price of uranium has to go up or the lights go out. Those are the two choices, but it doesn't have to happen soon. The near-term pace of the price of uranium will be set by the pace of Japanese restarts, which has unfortunately, from my point of view, been glacial reactor restarts. The identifiable above-ground inventory is largely Japanese, and the missing demand is Japanese. So many speculators have trauma holding stock over a long weekend, and they prefer to think in periods of time that are like 90 days long. What you learn with regards to uranium is that when uranium moves, the uranium stocks move so far that even if you're two years early, the rent that they pay you in a financial sense probably overcomes the disutility that you felt financially waiting for that sort of circumstances. Mercifully at age 66 with my time on earth put differently now that I have less time on earth strangely I've become much more patient. This is the first time in recent weeks that I've even wanted to discuss the Japanese fact or even mention the word Fukushima. As a journalist my knowledge is well France continues to consume and they're active in the sector globally with regard to acquiring more uranium and then we've had control by the large producers like Cameco and Denison attempting to control successfully I guess the price of uranium and all these new reactors coming online and the US becoming sort of irrelevant maybe it hasn't been relevant maybe again and then China but yet Japan is still the component to the success ultimately of the sector it's all about Japan in the near term two comments Globally, demand for uranium now exceeds the pre-Fukushima demand as a consequence of the construction of new plants, very large plants, mostly in East Asia, but also in the Middle East. When I say that Japan is critical, Japan isn't critical two and a half or three years from now. Japan is critical now. Two and a half or three years from now, the new plants that are being built and are financed and are under construction will take care of the difficulty. Many of your listeners' time horizons don't include three years. They, like speculators, include 12 months or 18 months. And in the context of those people's perception, Japan is all important. The United States is, I believe, still the largest consumer of uranium in the world. But I don't see us as a force for growth in the uranium business. It's interesting that the Germans have shut down their nuclear fleet. So what they now do is they import nuclear energy from France rather than generating themselves. The Germans have, because they're very wealthy, in their wisdom decided to rely on solar power. The difficulty is that the sun doesn't shine in Germany. The other thing that they've done, mercifully for me as an American, is that <laughs> because they're so green, a lot of their generating capacity comes from, I'm not kidding you, brown American lignite coal. If it sounds odd, it's odd. All I can say is that rich people do strange things in both the United States and Germany. Speaking of rich people, Rick, what are you and or Sprott doing with regard to investment in the uranium sector? Well, uh, my suspicion is that because the rebound took longer than I would expect, and since it took longer than the issuers would expect, I think all the juniors, all the junior uranium companies, are going to have to come back to the well. They're going to need to raise more sustaining capital. And so I'm preparing myself 
to enjoy a whole new round of private placements, and I'm prepared to stand in. I would hope that I'm the only one in the world willing to finance these companies, which means that the terms that I would be able to extract would be, from my point of view, generous, including long-dated warrants. But we're in a circumstance where the juniors have some pretty good assets. They're run by veteran people. I'm not trying to say all of them, but there's many top quality companies there. And I look forward to receiving a phone call or several phone calls saying, Rick, can Sprott help us? And I look forward to responding certainly for a price. And those in my audience that have just heard Mr. Rule ask for that. His door is open in Carlsbad, California. Please do contact him, and I'm sure you know how to reach him. And if you don't, then you don't. Rick, this has been an, an amazing conversation. I thank you so much for your time. Always great to see you here at Minds and Money in London. Thanks so much for joining me today. I would like, if you would be willing, to offer your listeners an inducement. By all means, go ahead. Any of your listeners that care about our opinions with regards to natural resources should feel free to email us on a no obligations basis their natural resource portfolio. We will rank that portfolio and comment on the companies where appropriate. We will also send you the 40-year Barron's Gold Mining Index that I referred to. If you will email us, me personally, at rankings, R-A-N-K-I-N-G-S, at SprottGlobal.com, and be patient. I rank these portfolios individually. We will rank them and return them. Rick, it's always a pleasure. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. I've been speaking with Rick Rule at Minds and Money London. To learn more about Mr. Rule and Sprott, go to SprottUSA.com or SprottGlobal.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Subscribe to the Ellis Martin Newsletter. It's free. Go to EllisMartinReport.com and fill out the quick and easy pop-up form. High-quality but undervalued mining stocks are finally starting to attract the attention of investors. Get the latest news and resource stock investment opportunities with a subscription to Resource World magazine. Published six times a year, Resource World features in-depth articles on mineral area plays, commodities of interest, and valuable investment insights by highly qualified market analysts, geologists, and mining journalists. Go to resourceworld.com to find out more. I'm Ellis Martin. Recently, I was in London speaking at the Minds and Money Conference at the Islington Design Center when I had the pleasure of chatting with Daniel Major, CEO of our new sponsor, GoVX Uranium. GoVX trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol GXU and in the U.S. as GVXXF. GoVX Uranium is a mineral resource company focused on the exploration and development of its African uranium properties. GoVX's principal objective is to become a significant uranium producer through the continued exploration and development of its mine-permitted Madwella project in Niger, its mine-permitted Mutanga project in Zambia, and its Falea project in Mali. Daniel, welcome to the program here at Mines and Money. Uh, thanks, and glad to see you here in London. I'm glad to be here in London. Since you're new to our audience, you're not new to me, but you're new to our audience, please give us an overview of the company. Yeah, let's put it in simple terms. GoVX is a uranium development company. Task is to take the three projects that we have in Africa, and we're only in Africa, two of them which are fully permitted, and move them into production. Just to repeat on that, three projects in Africa, one in Niger, one in Zambia, one in Mali, two of those are permitted. Main focus is Niger. It's all about getting that project into cash flow while when the uranium market recovers. That's a lot of information there, but what I took from it was that you're permitted, which basically means you're ready to go, and that's pretty rare in the junior space. Exactly, and I think that's really is what we've been telling to tell the market, guys, if you think uranium market is going to go, you want to go to the guys who can turn it to cash flow. 
flow. There's some great projects out there, but within three years, we can be producing uranium from our Nigerian project. That includes all the funding and more importantly, the construction. Three years from now, we're generating cash flow. Does that mean you're ultimately going to be a producer? As we currently stand, absolutely. And I think my approach has always been, you do not know what's in your future. What you can do is de-risk your project all the way. And the best way to de-risk a project is turn it into a cash generator. If somebody turns up halfway through that process and decides to offer you a really large check, then you'll take that really large check. Similarly, you may do things in a different way, bringing in strategic investors who become part of that model. Again, we have three projects, so we can do different things in different places in the way we run our strategy, unlike our peers who only have one. And these projects are in great jurisdictions in Africa, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, I think if I was going to choose three jurisdictions for us in uranium, these would be the ones. We have Niger. Niger's 60% of its exports every year is uranium. It is fully cognizant of how uranium works. The whole pipeline of moving material in and out for uranium is fully understood. Importantly, it's been mining uranium for 50 years, but this first of its big mines is due to close in 2021 in March. There's a labor force there already trained in mining who's going to be looking for a work going forward and employment. Government is pressuring us to try and get ahead and get there to be ready to build. So we've got a very supportive government in Niger. The other thing about Niger is the mining code hasn't changed since 2006. It's an FDI driven mining code as well from that point of view and it's had multiple government just changing over peacefully so very good now what do you have to do to prepare what we've done it really comes off the back of cameco's announcements i looked at where cameco said they wanted to have the uranium price to justify macarthur river coming back and i looked at what we had as a project and cameco said 50 dollars. let's call it a round number 50 dollars. they had to five four but we'll round it to 50. i went back to my guys and said guys we're that close we have to make maduela work of less than $50 of uranium. Because if Cameco restart MacArthur River, Kazatomprom will start increasing their production. That may cap the price out around that number, okay? So what I have said to my guys is we make our project work. So what we've done is sit down with the pre-feasibility study and done a number of things with it. We firstly, we want to get rid of any technical risks that we've got in there. We had some technology that helped bring our costs down, but they were not industry standard. So we have found and worked on and tested industry standard ways of getting the same or better results. So we're taking out ablation, bringing a different process to get the benefits of ablation, but with an additional benefit of reducing the amount of calcite, which are acid consumption. We had solvent extraction in to recover the molybdenum and clean up the uranium. Solvent extraction is not normal. We have now found an iron exchange process, which is an industry standard process for uranium recovery. Why is this important? because it also makes them bankable. The banks will analyze a project for its technical risk. If I can take the technical risks out for the bank, it makes it more bank financeable. And then lastly, which is important with our deal with the government in Niger, we expanded our mining permit. Why is that important? Because now the open pit is big enough that I can present it to the banks as a standalone project. The fact that there's 14 years of underground mining afterwards is outside their scope. You have to give the bank something that's easy for them to assess and simple for them to finance. So your projects, essentially, are they more economic than a lot of our Canadian friends? I mean, some of the numbers your guys are putting down in Canada, I mean, they're Ferrari projects. I mean, look at what Denison's suggesting on what they can get out of the... I can't compete with that. But what I can say is that I will make Maduela, hopefully, equal to MacArthur River because I will be looking for the same price to get Maduela going as Cameco are looking to get MacArthur up and running. So, yes, I am getting it in the same benchmark. It's funny when I hear you say Cameco's looking at getting MacArthur running and you've got players like Denison. I mean, they were one of the reasons... 
the cutbacks happen so they could control the market. Absolutely. I mean, and Denison's got permitting to go through. I mean, but they've got a fascinating technology of what they've put in there at ISR. The other projects have still got to go through their permitting. I mean, we'll see where they all end up on size. You know, the grades are what really drives those Canadian projects. But what I'm able to show is that, you know, a project in Africa compete perfectly well with the Canadian projects. But I'm permitted. They've got years of permitting still to go. Where's the Africa offtake going? Is it going to Europe? Is it going to France? Niger's all goes into France. It's all the Rivas offtake, so it goes into there, and the EDF consume it to run the power. I mean, don't forget, 75% of all the power in France is nuclear, so that's where it goes. So what goes on in North America is not as relevant to your company as perhaps to others? No, not at all. I mean, we will look at what goes on in North America. Because you remember when we want to look at building our pipeline of, of offtake, we're going to focus on Europe, we'll focus on China, and we'll focus on Russia as well. I mean, those are obvious jurisdictions for us. Rosatom have been recently announced they're wandering around Niger. The Chinese are already in Niger. The U.S. will be part of that area, but it will be blending together the various offtakes. You never want to sell everything to one person. You want multiple people to say it, but you'll build a basket. And yet you are listed in Canada and the U.S. Yes, but all my projects are in Africa. I mean, listing is a financial home that you position yourself. That doesn't mean we have to sell into those markets. Do you see any exponential changes in the uranium sector during the next two or three years? And it's my contention, I'm speculating here, that really nuclear energy is a partner to the battery mineral space you generated, and that space stores it. Absolutely. At the end of the day, the battery metals talk about being energy minerals. Well, actually, they don't produce energy at all. That's required for us to do it. But I think you're absolutely right in talking before we came online about where to from here. And, and the uranium sector particularly has gone through, in my view, a really good year from a top-down point of view. Yes, it hasn't come to the price yet, but what you've seen go through is you've gone through various changes since 2011 is you know a bit like the grieving process really and we're now coming out to an increasing level acceptance and if you look at the 2007 fuel report and the one that was recently brought out in September 2019 by the World Nuclear Association in the low case they actually had declining nuclear generation now they've got rising nuclear generation other than the obvious things we talk about India China building Japanese restarts the two big things were really the political changes of acceptance coming through which I think is a big driver you got France who were in talking politically of going from 75 down to, they've now kicked that out at least 10 years and you probably can expect them to kick that out again so you've got a good underpin in Europe you've got the British government both sides the potential of the political spectrum both the Labour Party and the Conservative Party both pro-nuclear there aren't many nations where that occurs one side usually picks the other side generally across Europe other than the Germanic states pro-nuclear but the biggest one has really been in the US 2017 WNA were forecasting a decline in the number of reactors in the US and fairly substantial they were talking 10 15 reactors would be closed over the next 20 years now they're not expecting any closures and affecting they're assuming that the existing reactor fleet will stay in place that you will have 55 new builds around the world but more importantly the US guys are now confident enough given the recent subsidies etc to now start thinking about 60 year lives 80 year lives for their reactors not just the original 40 so that has changed a lot as well and provides that longer term underpin so a year ago WNA forecast reference was like 1.2% it's now 2% big change and that influences obviously the cutback on supply tightening up of the market. What kind of potential mine life is there involved with your projects in Africa to support that growth over time? What kind of company is this? 
We currently have two projects, one with 21 years and one with 11 years. But they're 21 and 11 years because we turned the drill rigs off a really, really long time ago. Commonac has mined a piece of ground the same size as our Madawela 1 license for the last 50 years. And we're the uptick section of Commonac. So we certainly know there's a lot of potential as we move just towards their project because they're on our boundary. Also south of us on our other project. We've got six licenses there. A lot of exploration upside. Once you get the first one generating cash, you can then look at Brownfield's expansions. Do you double its size? Do you look at the way that you're structuring it? Do you work with partners locally? We built a plant, why doesn't someone else come and work with us and process their material? Same in Zambia, we did the deal with Africa Energy to give ourselves 140 kilometers of strike length. We had three deposits from when the Denison days and we had two from Africa Energy. And there's a big gap in between full of trenches for we put in, which say, please drill me on it because there's a potential for resource growth there as well. So again, another project that can be expanded up. And then we still always have Mali in the background that we have to add to. The investment community, how are you finding the sentiment changing on the institutional level, which also eventually trickles down to the retail level? I think the one problem that the investments, whether they're institutional or retail, is a lot of guys are early and are exceedingly frustrated by how early they are. And I think the general taste, and I get it, I mean, investors don't think we in the company are any different. I mean, we keep trying to get ready to do things and then you end up realizing you have to wait a bit longer to do it. A lot of guys are now kind of like, okay, I get it, I get the story, but I'm going to sit on the side and wait now to let it happen. And then when I see it happening, I'm going to buy into it and I'll do it. So there is a lot of pent up momentum sitting there that will come in. A lot of guys were early and are frustrated. And there's a lot of guys who are watching it going, when you show me it's working, I'm definitely on my way in. I can't remember if it was 2007 or 2011, that general time period where there was, wound up being a bubble. I thought it was a, a market that was happening, but it wound up being a bubble that was quashed by events in Japan. The math would be different now, wouldn't it? If there's a general interest in the sector, it could build over time. Not necessarily parabolically, which we don't want, but good gradual strength over time. And I think the resource sector outside of gold is looking for something to love right now. And it seems like the tide is turning towards uranium. Yeah. And I think you're right. I mean, we've gone through some changes here. Some of them have been black swan events that have have driven the market. This thing, I think you're absolutely right in your commentary up front, was this is now building a real base to it. You know, it's not 2007 where you had Cigar Lake flood. It is more like 2011. You've got to remember 2011 pre-Fukushima was happening because nuclear was in a renaissance and projects were just trying to keep up with the demand side that was going on out there. And that is kind of where we're getting to, to a degree. When so far as if you look at the WA numbers again, yeah, we fill a gap, but then suddenly you've got all these projects that start to disappear very quickly. Both of the Rivas mines in Niger, gone within about six years from now with Sommet going down. Even Cigar Lake, 2028, it's gone as a mine. You've got to then look at whether phase two is justifiable. Some of the big Kazakh projects, gone, finished mining, everything they've got. And so you are sitting at a risk that this market starts to tail off and there's nothing there. But what you have seen, which was the pre sort of 2007 run, the 2004 up before MacArthur Cigar Lake went, which was everything used to come from the government stocks. And there wasn't a lot of 
inventory around at a, an industry level. And that's what really started that sort of two, four to seven run going is that you had a very tight market and it required government selling to keep meeting it all of the time. And that, there was constraint there. We're now in a situation now where the same thing occurs, but the government hasn't got much left to sell. There's been a lot of stock drawdown from the DOE, etc. So you are getting a very tight market that will do a run pick. You do have new players. You've got the Kazakhs now a little more flexible in the way that they can operate. But ultimately, you are looking at a lot of big projects disappearing, which need to be replaced. So there is a lot of space for us. I say for us, it's get in first, be there at a low cash cost. I don't really care what else turns up. Our project is big enough to be interesting, but not too big to influence the market. And then we're set to go. The cash costs that you mentioned, they are lower, and it's probably because it is in Africa, correct? Yeah, we're looking at about a 24 cash cost at the moment. I was looking at a cost curve somebody sent around yesterday, and that puts a second quarter. If we can get the cost savings through, I'll get to the bottom end of that cost curve. And then, yes, you've got the real low-cost guys out of Kazakhstan, etc. But second quarter is a great place to be. We have to deal with our grades, but we've been innovative in the way that we dealt with it. You've got two majors involved in your shareholder base, Denison Mines and Cameco Corporation. What was their motivation to partner with you? Cameco came in in 2008. They were looking for projects to expand out what they were doing. Don't forget this was at that time, one of those bull runs. Tim Getzel used to run the Rivers projects in Niger, so he knew them well. And they were looking for other opportunities out there. And so they were really the real first big investor into the company. Denison was obviously on the back of a transaction we did with Denison. We approached them after they acquired Rockgate and said, really, you want to focus on your Canadian projects. Why don't we look after the African projects and let us be the Africa play? You can be the Canadian play. That makes sense to both of us. I certainly, I am talking to David Cates, and I think that's a strategy they agree has worked. Let's talk about the management team because I think it's very impressive. Start with the board, go with there. You obviously got Govin, who founded this company. He's had a long history, a lot of relationship with his father. So that's really where we can leave going forward as well and it's more about when we come to the financing side the contacts that are out there to get this investment through i think the other thing i'd say about our board is we've got a quite nice balanced board and we've just done our board reviews internally and we've got guys who cover the legal we've got guys who cover debt financing we've got guys like ben wallace who's done projects in africa and building africa so we've got a nice blend we've got david cates on the uranium side on the management technical side we're relatively small there's about three of us at the moment but we can build that up we know where to go my background is a mining engineer i've worked all over the world in multiple commodities i've been an equity analyst as well. I've got a senior metallurgy guy who works with us, a guy called Rob Bowell. He's worked in all sorts of commodities, but a lot in uranium, in ISRs and all sorts of things. He's even built his own copper mine from scratch in Namibia. And then I've got a, a chief geo who's worked in most of the major uranium districts as well brings a lot of experience on the geology side. So we're all getting long in the tooth, but we've also had a lot of diversity in what we've done. I think it's interesting. I believe, having been out to a few projects, although never a uranium project, that the mining engineer is probably the most crucial component of deciding whether a project's economic enough, even more so than a geologist. Well, I think at the end of the day, one of the comments I'll say about mining engineers, we're jacks of all trades, but we must have absolutely nothing. So what we are, all we know is break rock. But what it does do as a mining engineer is because you are a master of nothing, you're very good at asking lots of stupid questions about other things that you don't know about. And a lot of our other peers within the group are real specialists and they know their detail incredibly well. And that ability to kind of provide that overlap that brings everybody together 
is kind of what makes mining engineers what we are, is that ability to tie the team together. Having worked on mines for a long time as an operator, you know, I'm used to fighting with metallurgists and asking them why they've lost all of the metal I just mined out of the ground, and I'm spending my time fighting with geologists to ask them why the material's not there where it's supposed to be. So you kind of become that conduit in the middle, which, you know, and I jokingly say that, you know, we're a pretty good comradery in the industry, but it does help a group. And then on the other side, I've worked in the financial sector as well. So I've kind of had my time on the financials, understanding what shareholders are looking for and how debt and equity works. Speaking of which, how are you capitalized for 2020? We're okay at the beginning of 2020, but as the year goes on, if the market's improving, we obviously, like all development companies, are going to have to raise some money. That's just a function of it. When will be at our decision? What are we going to see on the ground in Q1, Q2? Q1, Q2, very much focus on tightening up where we are on that feasibility study. I think we're currently having a look and deciding whether an interim PFS is worth having a look at. Really as much as anything, because it's a long wait to the FS, and I need something not only for investors, but more importantly, to take out to off-takers and to lenders to say, well, look, guys, that's what we had in 2015, but this is where we now are. This is the kind of project I'm presenting to you. Here's some economics, here's some scope. We'll refine the numbers. So that's going to be what you're going to see from us. If the market continues on even further than that, we'll obviously start putting more pressure on, on Zambia and on Mali as well. Tell us about the share structure of the company. We've also got the major shareholders sitting in there. That whole lot is sitting with about 30%, and then the rest is retail and institutional. Probably about 50-50 split is where we currently stand. Fully diluted? And we got 133 warrants due of which probably 22 million warrants will go at the end of the year because their price warrant converts too high. Daniel, if you could say anything about the company that we haven't said during this interview, what would that be? I mean, the message I try to get across to investors is, you know, we're not an explorer, we're that developer. What our business model is all around is turning this into a business, a cash generating business that is there for the long term. Well, Daniel, it's great to finally sit down and have a chat with you about your company. I look forward to many more in the future. Thank you so much for joining me today at Minds and Money London. Thank you very much. And again, thanks for coming to London. I've been chatting with Daniel Major, the CEO of GoVX Uranium, trading as GXU on the TSX Venture Exchange and in the U.S. as GVXXF. For Minds and Money in London, I'm Ellis Martin. Would you like to be one of the first to see who we are following? Subscribe to our audio newsletter. It's free. EllisMartinReport.com. Hi there, it's me, Ellis Martin. I'm back at the Minds and Money London conference where I've had the pleasure of speaking with my friend Victor Cantori, the president and CEO of sponsor MX Exploration, trading on the TSX Venture Exchanges, AMX, and in the U.S. as AMXEF, one of the premier junior mining companies at this event. MX Exploration is exploring its 100% owned Perone Gold project in Quebec, Canada, featuring super high-grade intersects. Victor, welcome back to the program. Great to see you here this time in London. Sometimes I wake up at my hotel room. I have no idea what city I'm in. I know that happens to me also many times. You wake up and you say to yourself, which city am I in the world? There's been a lot of positive chatter about your company here at the conference at Minds and Money in London. People are talking about you unsolicited. Occasionally I'll ask, who do you like? And everybody says MX Exploration. And there are several companies here, but you're really standing out. It's because of the project, because of the team, isn't it? Yeah, we have a good team put together. One of the things 
things that we've really surprised the market is coming up with a 100,000 meter expanded program. That is a lot of meters for a junior company. So it's going to really keep us busy throughout the balance of 2019 and also 2020. We plan on doing metallurgical work in the early 2020. So we'll have those results out sometime in, sometime in the first quarter. And also trying to launch a first resource calculation, a maiden resource calculation sometime in late 2020. And we really want it to be a meaningful resource. That's why we're going to continue with a really aggressive drilling program. I think, and I spoke to Kelly Malcolm last week in Vancouver, and I was kind of taken aback about the 100,000 meters of drilling for next year. 100,000 is pretty extreme. So you're not going to draw this out for months or for years. You want to find out what you have in the ground now. Absolutely. We're actually here to find the gold, find the ounces, expand on it. I see sometimes, I mean, in our case, it was easy. We're very confident that we have lots of gold. It's very speculative. Me saying that, that's what we feel. And that's why we're going to drill it. And again, it may be expanded again another time. I don't want to do 100,000 meters over a three, four year period. We're going to bring in a third drill on January 5th and really show the market whether the gold is there or not. And I do believe it's there. I have to ask you, what do you think when you hear about a company like Kirkland taking out Detour? What does that do to your calculus, your mentality? Because you're in the area. Pretty exciting because when you look at the Halt Holloway mine, it's just south of us. When you look above us and it's Detour, to get to Detour, you're going to have to come through us. Now they got Detour and let's show that there is a massive deposit here. Are you not taking meetings right now? No, we're drilling right now. That's good to hear. How do you feel about the gold sector in general? I think it's great. I was watching one of the speakers at the program here, and, and what he was talking about is saying that I think in 50-some-odd currencies, gold is actually at a record price. And when you look at gold in Canadian terms, I mean, for us, all our costs will be in Canadian dollars. Gold is actually trading near the top. Gold had hit 1900 and changed back in 2011, and it's actually trading that in Canadian dollars because the Canadian dollar and the U.S. dollar were trading at close to par at that time in 2011, right? Nothing's a 30% discount. So for us, it's really exciting. The price of gold, and I do think price of gold will continue to go up higher. How much patience should a junior mining company have if their door gets knocked on by the majors and you say to them, wait a minute, I'm not quite ready yet. And is there a threshold that comes and goes where if you don't move on that potential transaction, it may be too late? I think the first thing is that explorers need to understand their role in the market. And their role in the market is they are explorers. And once you find something, I think you should turn it over to a major at a profit. You got to think of your shareholders first. That's your fiduciary duties to your shareholders. In our case, we have skin in the game, so we are shareholders also. And whatever is good for the shareholders is what we'll do with the company. If it comes to that in the future, are you just going to be talking to the major shareholders or will you give all your shareholders an opportunity to have a say in it? So look, it's obviously speculative, but I'll go traditionally how this would work. So let's say a major uh, approaches us. They're going to want a break fee. They're going to want a management to lock up and to make a recommendation. So at that point, it'll go to all the shareholders. I only believe that all the shareholders should make that decision. I am a shareholder at the end. I'll make my own choice the rest of management. But yes, the shareholders are here and you've got to give them a voice. Well, Victor, it's always great to see you and speak with you. Thanks a lot for a great interview. I appreciate your visiting with me here at Minds of Money in London. Thank you. I've been speaking with Victor Cantori, President and CEO of Amex Exploration, trading as AMX on the TSX Venture Exchange and AMX EF in the United States. For Minds and Money in London, once again, I'm Ellis Martin. If you're a principal in a publicly traded company seeking exposure to our listening audience, send us an email, 
martinreports at gmail.com. That's martinreports at gmail.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Gerald Penitent, the executive chairman of TerraX Minerals, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol TXR and in the U.S. as TRXXF. TerraX owns a 100% interest in the Yellowknife City Gold Project, encompassing 783 square kilometers of contiguous land within 12 kilometers of the city of Yellowknife. The project is located in the prolific Yellowknife Greenstone Belt, covering 70 kilometers of strike length along the main mineralized break-in proximity to the former high-grade Khan and Giant gold mines, which have produced over 14 million ounces of gold. The Yellowknife City Gold Project is close to vital infrastructure, including all-season roads, air transportation, service providers, hydroelectric power, and skilled tradespeople. Mr. Pennington was the founder of Detour Gold, which was recently acquired by Kirkland Lake for $4.9 billion Canadian. And we will begin the conversation discussing this amazing acquisition. Gerald, welcome to the program. It's great to have you on the air with us today. Thank you so much, Ellis. Now, we've had some outstanding news. I heard about it when I was in London at Mines & Money last week. Of course, I'm talking about the acquisition of Detour Gold by Kirkland Lake. You founded Detour Gold, and if you don't mind, I'd like you to review the timeline from beginning to end. I think it's appropriate, as I was the founder of Detour in 2006, there's actually a quick parallel we can go back to. I found that the new company, Terax, is a very similar story as purchasing the Detour Lake asset from Palangio Mine back in 2006. We did an IPO. One of the most important things I was very able to is put the asset into a new structure, a new share structure, which was basically just 40 million share $35 million in the bank and 100% of the Detour Lake story. And of course, we started drilling in January 07 immediately. And of course, the resource, which was about just over a million ounces back in 2007, grew over the years until approximately more than 20 million ounces, which became about 16 million ounces in reserve. Now the mine has been in production for almost six years. I left at the end of 2013. As you remember, gold dropped from $1,700 to $1,100. The detour story is an achievement of raising $2.6 billion, drilling from January 07 to 2011, produce a feasibility study in 2010, and start building the project sometime in 2011. The mine costs about $1.5 billion, produced today 600,000 ounces a year for the next 20 to 25 years. I left the company sometime at the end of 2013 when gold price went from 1700 in 2013 down to approximately 1100 And of course, our stock price went down from 20 to $5. So it was a bit of a sad 2013, but I think I was not the only one. A lot of gold companies suffered during that year and in 2014 thereafter. What I'm really proud of is creating the value from $100 million market cap in 2007, a purchase price of $75 million. Last week, it got sold to Kirkland Lake for $4.9 billion Canadian. So in my mind, this is what it is, creating value with the drill bit, putting it in production if need to be, unless you get purchased by another company because they like your assets so much. In the case of Detour, we were approached once in 2011 to be purchased by another big company, but it failed through. Nothing to say that 
I'm happy for Detour because we still have six, seven hundred people working at the mine for many, many years to come. Now, do you think there's any more opportunities in that area? Because part of the talk, part of the chatter at the Mines and Money Conference in London was that opens up our opportunity for many of the juniors in the area. Well, some of them anyway, with potential high-grade deposits. But do they exist or are we done for a while? And what other opportunities are there in the world? And then we can focus on the Yellowknife area and your project. I, as a geologist who has worked for 12 years at Barrick in corporate development, exploration, development, I also built two mines in Tanzania. And when you look at the Keynesian picture for exploration and development of project, I would say that at the most, maybe there's five to 10 very good projects in Canada that warrant a follow-up. Like Bob Smith used to say at Eric, it's easier to find gold where there has been gold found than trying to find it in the boonies. And that's exactly what happened at Detour. And I think with sustained exploration, I'm sure there's a chance for discovering more deposit. For example, the lower Detour at the Detour Lake Asset was one of those new discoveries that we made in recent years. Now, when you look at the Keynesian pictures of gold mining camp, whatever you talk about Detour or others, some of them are very quite mature. I would say Timmins, Red Lake. I'm not saying you're not going to find anything in those camps, but the chances, what are the chances to find 5 million ounces in a camp in Canada with infrastructures? So do you think the Yellowknife area is basically immature and it can be developed and you with TerraX will lead that development? That's exactly right. I think from my assessment of Canadian stories and Canadian mining camp, there are some other stories. I'm not saying we're the only one, but we're the only one that has an airport, a town with 30,000 people, hydropower, power line, driving to the project itself, less than half an hour to the middle of the town, with the potential of getting from five or maybe even more ounces in this camp. Two mines have produced about 14 million ounces in Yellowknife, and both were closed in 2003 and 2004. The potential to find more deposit, which is exactly where we're working on with Samoto and Crosstoran deposit, is tremendous. These are only two examples of what we can lead in the future to find more deposit in the belt. But our first two targets could easily be advanced in 2020, 2021, and reach more than 2 million or 3 million ounces within the next couple of years. And that's where the Yellowknife camp is tremendous. It does have the footprint of a gold camp, which is still immature. And this is what brought you into the company. Tell us about how you wound up with TerraX. I've been asked to look at Terax for a number of years. For those who remember, some very important people have actually invested in Terax over the years. Andre Gaumont of Virginia Mine, which was purchased then by Cisco, was one of those earlier believers in the story. So is the founders of Terax. Good geologists been involved in the gold exploration business. What I think Terax new CEO David Suda realized a year ago was that he was looking for more experience in terms of advancing a project of that stature. He was kind of like, yes, we have a great property, 800 square kilometers almost. However, maybe not enough strategy, maybe not enough vision into bringing this project forward and focusing in what's the best so far. And I think the resource that we put out on November 4th, which will come out in a 4301 this week, is definitely one of those projects, one of those two zones that can help develop the project into 
two, three, four million ounces, maybe more. There's no question that the gold endowment of Yellowknife will prove to be true with sustained exploration and sustained drilling. But let's start with easiest one that I've been already found. And that's why I believe that once I did my due diligence in May 2019, there was no hesitation for me to join the company and also the founder of the company, Joe Campbell, to pursue their goal of developing this into a new gold camp in Canada. So essentially, we can hopefully, as investors or potential investors, and this is speculation on my part, not yours, potentially, we can see a district size project with Terra X on the other side of Canada. We can get some new excitement in a part of the world that is known for the Aurora Borealis. Quebec, Ontario is the ABCB depth. It's a great, amazing environment for gold deposits. The parallel you can draw from the ABCB depth, which has Yale almost 200 million ounces over the last 100 years, is that the Great Flint Belt of New Northwest Territory has somewhat the same potential. Same age, 2.6 to 2.7 billion years. I know it sounds technical, but you're looking at a very similar situation. An important belt, 14 million ounces produced, and there's nothing that tells you that it stops there because the potential has always barely just scratched the surface. So in my mind, this Yellowknife camp and others surrounding Yellowknife is a tremendous opportunity for a junior like Terax to create value and generate more answers. But what's very important is that Yellowknife is well set with all the infrastructure necessary to develop a mine with the mining philosophy and the mining structure that you have usually in Northern Canada. What can we see going forward for 2020, Gerald? 2020 is a year where we'd like to advance our two main projects, which are Crestorum and Samoto by drilling. We're planning to do 20,000 meters of drilling, a winter program on Samoto and a summer program on Crestorum. With this, we will be updating our current resource of 735,000 ounces and hopefully get over 2 million ounces by the end of 2020. Now, adding you to the board, actually, was a great move by Dave Suda, but we also have members of the management team that have been added that are worth discussing. It's a very good point to bring up because with the team I built Detour in 2006 and early 2007, I brought with me my colleague that I've been working more than 26 years is Mr. Louis Dion. Louis was a senior VP at operation at Barrick for many, many years. He was my first director at Detour in 2006. When we went through the project in May, he accepted, hands up, to say that, let's go. This is another detour again. We got a great opportunity to create value. Thing happened with bringing Laurie Gabori as a director. Laurie was my investor relation in the early days of Detour in 2006. She actually just left Detour last summer. So she spent close to 13 years at Detour. And she's one of those top investment relations with all the contacts. A story can be told, but you need to be able to tell it properly and very simply. Not everybody is technical. You need to have some financial background. You need to be able to present in a very simple way the value that you can create in the future on a project like you know life like we did at detour lake so we're just bringing more depth more experience to support over the next couple of years the development of the yellow knife project gerald it's been a real pleasure speaking with you today i look forward to more conversations in the future thanks so much for joining me today on the program thank you Alice. my pleasure and i look forward to the next time i've been speaking with gerald penitent the executive chairman of terra x minerals trading on the tsx venture exchange under the symbol txr and in the u.s as trxx 
TerraXF. For TerraX Minerals and the Ellis Martin Report, I'm Ellis Martin. TerraX is a paid sponsor of the Ellis Martin Report. Subscribe to the Ellis Martin Newsletter. It's free. Go to ellismartinreport.com and fill out the quick and easy pop-up form. I'm Ellis Martin, and I've returned to a favorite landing spot and speaking engagement, Minds & Money London. I've met a new friend, Brad Rourke, the president and CEO of Scotty Resources, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as SCOT. Scotty owns a 100% interest in the high-grade, past-producing Scotty Goldmine property, located in British Columbia's Golden Triangle, which is among the world's most prolific mineralized districts. Brad, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Nice to see you here at Mines and Money in London. It's a great venue, and we wish you all the best. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's, it's fantastic to be here. I think the show's going well, and yeah, we're performing the way it should. If you don't mind, give us an overview of the company. You're new to our audience. Sure. The asset we have is the old past-producing Scotty gold mine located in northern BC in a, a place called the Golden Triangle. The highlight of what got me interested in this a few years back was it was a past-producing mine, and it's situated between the Pridium Bruce Jack mine and the old Premier mine, which is ran by Ascot currently. And so now, by past-producing, you produced about 95,000 ounces from, well, you didn't do it, but the previous owners did from 1981 to 1985, right? Yeah, that's correct. It was Don McLeod's first mine, and it ran for about three years and produced a half ounce per ton. And there's no indication that ore ever ran out. The problem was gold went from, let's say, $750 to $300 in a very rapid flash. But there was a $20 million loan out at 20% interest to the Royal Bank of Canada. And so even at the lower gold prices, the mine was actually still profitable. It was the interest rates that just kind of crushed them. And then after that, it was held by the Royal Bank for about 10 years and hadn't really been worked until a couple years in 2003, 2004. They just kind of looked at the ore in front of them, but never did any exploration on the property. So do you have some indication of what's left? Well, there's a non-historic resource that we would peg at about 70,000 ounces, but that's still sitting with a 10 gram cutoff. Now that's not compliant because that was done before the instrument existed. But with the team that I've put together and looking at it, we think that that would be easily upgraded to about 100,000 today. But again, we're not really trying to define a resource at this moment. What we wanted to do is just do some property-wide exploration, which has never really been done. And that was the opportunity for us. And so that's what we've been focusing on for the last couple of years. Tell me about the size of the property. Well, when I first started, it was just 400 hectares. And I didn't appreciate that wasn't good enough because it was, hey, but since then, in the last four years, I started with about 400 hectares, and now I have 18,500. I live in the area. I was living in the closest town to Stewart, a town called Smithers, BC. And, and because I'm up there, and I think it afforded me to kind of know who needed something or who was about thinking making changes. So I've been able to accumulate quite a nice large land package just through hard work and making sure I was there on site lots. So we had a conversation yesterday, and you informed me that you had actually retired at the age of 40 and were taking it easy for a while, perhaps got bored and were frustrated with what was going on in this particular area. You invested in the previous iteration and then you got the company. Let's review that if you don't mind. Do I have it partially right? Correct. I was fortunate enough that I had some business work out really well. I came from the energy pad from Calgary and I did what everyone says they're going to do if you made a little bit of money. And I just wanted to raise my kids in a small town and having been familiar with Smithers from my 20s, my wife and I thought it was a perfect place to 
raise kids. So we went and built a log house in the middle of nowhere and I took the kids to school every day for about 10 years and coached all the sport. And literally, I never meant to own a mining company, but I made an investment in this particular asset. And it was apparent to me that I needed to either take control of it or just the direction the company was going was never going to work. Now, this part of Canada, this part of BC, actually, the Golden Triangle is a very prolific area. So there's potential upside with high grade for years to come, depending on what you find in the ground. Correct. One of the things I liked at the time, Peridium, the Bruce Jack mine, they were building a $440 million power line. And because it was a past-producing mine and this piece of infrastructure was going right by the mine, I was like, oh, I've been successful in real estate doing just that buying land before infrastructure was put in. And that's how naive I was. And I was like, oh, okay, great. But then I started looking at grade, started talking to a lot of people. I mean, there's intercepts on the Scotty property that are 107 grams over two wits of four meters that have never been followed up on. And there's multiple intercepts like that. So at the time, the Valley of the Kings, which is the Bruce Jack, showed huge grades. And it's not like my thoughts are, gold doesn't know there's a border between our two properties. And, and because there's a past producing mine, I got excited about it. And like I say, so I cleaned up a company. I took a whole bunch of land and we're finding high grades if you look at our last news release even though they're just surface samples if you understand that they're right beside the Scotty gold mine and 536 gram grab sample on surface is pretty good and, and some very beautiful chip samples and not to mention I've got 64 grammars and 38 grammars and, and such so we're quite excited fits the model that equity exploration put together and we're really excited to get out there and drill it I noticed in your material there's been quite a lot of drilling on the property is that historic correct there's roughly 700 drill holes but you have to understand their production drill holes. So in the past, when the mine was operating, they were little, little, just drilling what was out front of them so they could see if they could mine it or not. So yes, there's 700 holes, but it's really not exploration holes. We just currently did about a 20-hole program, 2,000 meters, to step out from some of these known zones so we could kind of define the model that was put together and, and actually see. So yes, there's a lot of holes, but just understand, they're all production. They were never exploration holes. Let's talk about exploration holes in 2020 and how you capitalized to proceed in that area. What is your plan? Well, the plan is, so we did a massive ground work or ground truthing on, on the new areas that we picked up around the mine. We are assessing those assays that have come back. We're excited. And I think we we're going to make the plan in January, but certainly we'll be drilling the new domino zone, which is last week's news because of what we see there. So it's so exciting. I think there's a few other zones that we might try and put some holes in just to test structure. And that's really what we're looking for structure but we haven't defined exactly how big of a program we'll do next year my thoughts are because we're feeling very comfortable we actually might dial it back here and just kind of prove up some things that are looking extremely exciting you can do that on your own without getting very very aggressive Correct. For the most part, I've self-funded this up until now. I have taken kind of public money, so to speak. Went to Beaver Creek and we're in a, I think, in a good position for a micro junior company right now. We have a little bit of cash in the bank. We have no debt. I certainly will have to go out and raise a little bit of capital for next year's program, but I'm feeling comfortable that we'll be able to do that. What sort of news can we look forward to in the coming six months? We still have a bunch of groundwork that we've done that we haven't released to the market yet. You should see that here before Christmas. And we did do a 2,000 meter drill program of which I should get those assays back. They're still to the lab. We just finished it October 17th. So I have 2,000 meters of drilling. I believe I should receive those mid-December, but it'll probably be the new year when we release those. Now tell me about the management team. Well, up until a year ago, it was just myself and consultants. All my technical work up to this point is done by equity exploration consultants. I'm very, very happy and proud that they've got their fingerprints on the technical work. I've just hired Thomas Mumford, 
who's come on full time. Now, he was the program head at BCIT, young geologist, young PhD, exploration geologist, who in the summer times when he wasn't running the geology program at BCIT, he was out consulting a lot in the Golden Triangle. He actually did my relogging program through Equity Exploration two seasons ago. Loved what he saw. He's officially left BCIT and now he's my full-time geologist. I've also put together a board that I'm quite proud of. There's Ernie Mass has joined my board, who's a big company guy. He's well-known. He was a COO of New Gold. He uh, was the CEO president of Cobra Panama. Camaro, such. John Williamson is also on my board. He was behind Kamenak, Committee Bay. He's also currently running Benchmark and Alta Plano. So he's a small mining guy. And then I put an accredited board member who I've done business with before, Steve Stein, who built Black Diamond Camps from nothing to a $2 billion company. So I've got a, a really good team behind me advising me on things. And I really lean on my board. And like I say, I've got really good technical guys and we're growing. We've got uh, more to come. Well, 77 million shares issued and outstanding. What is your share price right now? I think the share price today is about 14 or 15 cents. Yes, there's 77 million shares, and I'd also like to add, I've, I personally own about 13 million shares, and I didn't start this company. Every share I have, I bought in the market. In order to take it over, I had to. My board owns about another 4 million shares, and then I finance this with friends and family, another 4 or 5 million shares of guys that I've done business with before. So I'm very happy with that. I mean, that's going to be well over 20%. And and I've currently traded about 40 million shares in the year 2019 at 15 cents or above. So I've cleaned out the float from the original company. I'm feeling comfortable that we're on solid ground. If you're a technical guy, you're really going to like looking at my chart, just knowing that we have got a base here. This is technically the bottom and I don't have any unhappy shareholders, which is quite nice in, in this environment as well. Well, Brad, if you were to say one thing about your company that makes it unique and worth taking a look at, what would that be? Well, there is no such thing as a bad mining story. So I understand that we're all telling great stories, but I check all the boxes that one should look at if you're gonna put risk capital to work. I'm sandwiched between one producing mine right now that's brand new. I check all the boxes that one would like to see. I've done all the technical work, I've got the rocks, I've got the people. We've situated ourselves into that batter's box where we've done everything proper. And even though it's a high risk situation, people are interested in this industry because of the potential torque you can get from investing money. I think we've done everything proper. If you're willing to put risk capital up, my company should be as good as anybody else's. Well, Brad, it's really great to meet you here at Minds and Money in London. Thank you so much for joining me today on the program. I wish you all the best. Well, thank you very much. Great meeting you. I've been chatting with Brad Rourke, the president and CEO of Scotty Resources, trading as SCOT on the TSX Venture Exchange. At Minds and Money London, I'm Ellis Martin. You may assume that Ellis Martin is a shareholder on any of the companies that sponsor the Ellis Martin Report which means he has a vested interest potentially in them. Once again, I'm Ellis Martin at the Mines & Money London Conference, and I'm sitting down with the president of New Pacific Metals, my friend Gordon Neal. New Pacific Metals trades on the TSX Venture Exchange as NUAG, and in the U.S. as NUPMF. New Pacific is a Canadian exploration and development company which owns the high-grade Silver Sand Project in the Potosi Department of Bolivia and the Tagus Lake Gold Project in Yukon, Canada. 
Gordon, welcome back to the program here in London, Minds and Money. Thank you for having me. Are you enjoying the show? Yeah, the show's great. I have never been here before, and I know that London is their flagship show. I guess they've had it here for 15 years, so it's quite the venue, and it's well attended. We have meetings all day, every day. In fact, as you know, I'm just slotting you in for a few minutes because I'm between meetings. It's not a bad thing to be in demand like that. We covered you several years ago, and since then, the company has really taken off in Bolivia. Yeah, we have made a major discovery that is exciting. I mean, I've been in the silver space for, what, 20 years almost, and started out with MagSilver. It was quite a discovery as well, and to have a second one of this magnitude that could have an effect on the silver space, a significant effect on the silver space, and the country of Bolivia as well, is gratifying and exciting. So this is essentially shining a big light on Bolivia. Well, yeah, they've opened their doors to foreign investment. They have one open pit mine there now. The largest employer in the country is the San Cristobal mine owned by Sumitomo, but it's going to shut down in about six years, so they're looking to open the doors to find another similar deposit or something like it that would could sort of take over from San Cristobal, and we are a potential candidate for that. Now, when I met you, you were with MAG and then, of course, with Silvercore for quite some time, and Silvercore has position in New Pacific. You've always had an eye on success, if you don't mind me saying. I know you won't say it of yourself. Yeah, you know, i got to say there's a lot of luck involved there. I follow good management teams around. Peter McGaw and Dan McGinnis and George Pespalis from MAG are great operators and a great management team. Rui Fang is one of the best silver operator, one of the best mining operators in the business. His narrow vein mines at Silver Corp, to get them to work and make the kind of gains and profits he does for shareholders got my attention. So I went to work for him to start. And then when he found this thing in Bolivia, he asked me to step up. He said, I can't run both companies. Can you help me and help to run New Pacific? What kind of modeling from Silvercore translates over to New Pacific, if any? Well, I guess the economics are really the focus that Ray has. Ray's not interested in running businesses that have to go to the well or have to incur a lot of debt. He wants them to be able to fund themselves, like Silvercorp funds itself. It's early days at New Pacific, but the Silver Sand Project, with intercepts of an average of 70 meters of 120 grams silver at surface, with recoveries that are at 88 to 97%, and a strip ratio that looks like it's less than one, all those metrics, you know, we have to wait for the numbers in our maiden resource and PEA, but if you put all those numbers together, it could be another economic win for Ray. And let's talk about the politics in Bolivia, and they change, and they've changed recently. How are you feeling about the climate there? When governments go into a little bit of upheaval and the president has to resign and run away, it causes you some kind of concern. You're really more worried about the people and their ability to be able to function day to day, right? They need to be able to feed themselves and transport themselves and have the basic essentials of life. When governments kind of go into that toppled over mode, it interrupts their daily lives. So we're concerned about the people of Bolivia, but they'll come through this. They're strong people, and the people that are looking to take over right now, they're having new elections, are foreign investment focused. We've met with them, we know who they are. Where our lands are private. So any kind of government movement doesn't really affect us because our projects are actually written in law. So we're not worried about our project. We just want the country to get sort of back on track so we can start working with them again. What I've noticed about a lot of Canadian companies, mostly what we cover, is that there's a strong sense of 
community involvement, community empowerment, and business with the community. This is something that you're very passionate about as well. We don't own the minerals in the places where we go. The people own them. The countries own them. Our job, as far as I'm concerned, is to extract those minerals as economically as possible and as environmentally sensitive and as community sensitive as possible. We don't own them. Our job is to employ the people there to help us get these minerals out of the ground to extract them properly and be respectful of their culture, of their environment, and the place they live. Tell us about the share structure of the company and what can we look forward to in the year 2020? We have 140 million shares out, but it's held by three major shareholders, which is Silver Corp owns 30%, Pan American owns about 17%, and Ray Feng himself owns 7%. So it's about 50, almost 60% held by insiders, and we have a strong cash position as a result of those three shareholders. We've got about $50 million in the bank, so we're a junior that's well capitalized. We have a strong balance sheet. So what's coming in the, in 2020 is we're going to do our maiden resource and Q1, Q2 of 220, and we're looking for a PEA at the end of the year. Well, Gordon, it's always great to see you wherever I am in the world. There you are, more or less. Thanks so much for joining me here at Minds of Money in London. Thank you, Alice. Thanks for having me. I've been speaking with Gordon Neal, the president of New Pacific Metals, trading as NUAG on the TSX Venture Exchange and as NUPMF in the United States. For Minds and Money London, once again, I'm Ellis Martin. Join us next time for more opportunities to discover on the Ellis Martin Report. Meanwhile, subscribe to the Ellis Martin Report. It's easy and it's free. Visit ellismartinreport.com.